0: Psalm 95, Brother Eddie's asked that we mark that song, and we're delighted certainly to have the opportunity to lift our voices together in song. Singing is such an important part of the worship service, and it encourages our hearts and spirits, and how often the psalmist, especially in the Old Testament, would lift high the power, the majesty, the beauty of singing. And so today, we have the privilege of engaging in the same sort of thing. You may have already noted as uh, you looked at the bulletin, as far as the title of the lesson this evening, we're going to journey into the Old Testament. And as we often give attention to the Old Testament, it reminds us, doesn't it, that those things written aforetime were written for our learning, that through patience and comfort of the Scriptures, we might have hope. The book of Haggai is nestled near the end of the Old Testament. And one of the first thoughts that perhaps we can share about it is to consider the following. It is useful, it would seem, and I think we'd all agree, to step our way through any given Bible book. We certainly try to do that in our Bible study periods, and so on Sunday morning we've about drawn to a close the book of Ruth. But even in sermons, it it is really valuable to give expository character to the fullness of a given Bible book. And over the years, we've done several Bible books that way. We have looked at the book of Ezekiel in some detail, using exactly that format. We've done Revelation. We've done the Old Testament book of Nahum. I thought tonight we might undertake the book of Haggai. It perhaps isn't the most well-known Bible book, but nonetheless, it is, of course, inspired, and it's worthy of our attention for the Holy Spirit saw fit to preserve it. And so there are lessons in it that can be very valuable, Lessons in it that can, in fact, motivate you and me today in exactly the way that God would wish for it to be done. The book is very short. Two chapters is all there is in this little book. 38 verses is it. And yet, nestled near the close of the Old Testament is this 37th book that, in fact, presents in such a compacted way lessons that were meaningful for the folks of that day but obviously, you and I know there are still principles within it that can be so very helpful to us as well. It would do us well to notice that the Old Testament prophets typically are regarded in two categories. There are the so-called major prophets, Isaiah through Daniel. But then there are the minor prophets, Hosea through Malachi. The book, of ne- uh, the book of Haggai fits in that second setting, and sometimes we might be tempted to think the word minor means they're less important or they're less significant in some way. Nothing could be further from the truth. Man has chosen to label them that way just because they're shorter. But there are lessons within it because it is the Word of God, and so tonight, why don't we begin a short series of lessons on the book of Haggai. The opening part of this lesson will be a historical overview. It would do us well, I think, to at least appreciate the history. And obviously we'll be brief about this because we want to get into the actual applications for us today. But when was the book written and who wrote it? And what was the time period in which it describes the events of the day? This slide and the next one are going to be my attempt to summarize that, and so I'll be relatively brief in much of this. The dates are probably things that you easily at least have easy recourse to find. After the reign of Solomon, we may remember that his son Rehoboam was the person becoming the next king, but there was a rather notable uproar. After all, many of the people of that day, they didn't like the extreme taxation that Rehoboam put upon the people. Didn't really care for the greatness of the amount demanded of them. And hence, they in fact made a request to Rehoboam, lighten the burden. The older people said, you ought to do it. But the younger ones said, you need to tax them heavier. You need to make their way even more grievous. And Rehoboam sided with the younger contemporaries and he said, I'm telling you what, if you thought my dad made things hard on you, you ought to wait until I develop it. And so the kingdom split. They were unwilling to remain in that kind of allotment. And ten of the twelve tribes, in fact, left that consideration in Israel. At that point, that united kingdom split into two pieces. There was the northern kingdom of Israel, and there was the southern kingdom of Judah. Now you can see on the slide that that division occurred roughly about the year 940 B.C. Somewhat interesting in that consideration, though, is what happened thereafter. You had two kingdoms proceeding through the reality of the various reigns of their kings. Rehoboam was the first king of that southern kingdom. Jeroboam was the first king of the northern one. And they proceeded through a number of years, but quickly note what happened to that northern kingdom. Notice that about 220 years, roughly, was all that they lasted until the Assyrian Empire conquered them, overwhelmed them and overran them, and hauled them off into Assyrian captivity. That's recorded for us in Second Kings chapter 17. The southern kingdom lasted quite a bit longer, but still reasonably brief, at least compared to many worldwide kingdoms, a little over 350 years, and they too met the fate of what their evil activities had brought because as they disobeyed the God of heaven, He turned them over to Babylon, and off to Babylonian captivity they went. We've now reached about the year 586 B.C. God sent prophets to warn them, to urge them to change their ways, but they wouldn't do it. No wonder in that regard, We now appreciate what happened to that southern kingdom. God did promise them that your captivity in Babylon will not be permanent, but a remnant shall come back. A remnant shall be allowed to return under the Persian leader Cyrus. We read about that in the book of Ezra. They did come back. They came back with the understanding, as you can see at the bottom of that slide, that Jerusalem, their beloved city, was now in ruins. The wall had been destroyed. Much of the particulars of that city was no longer in place, and even the temple had been burned to the ground, 2 Kings 25.9. So when the people came back, they didn't find the city waiting for them the same way it was in the distant characters of their memories. Yeah. They found a city that was in dire need of repair, a city that was in very difficult straits to be sure for that reason. There was a desperate need to do some rebuilding. The wall needed to be rebuilt and that would be done in the days of Nehemiah. And that 13 chapter Old Testament book highlights many of the beauties of that activity. But that won't be our emphasis tonight. You can see at the top, the people needed to do the thing most that was most central to their character. The God of heaven, remember, called them and gave them a covenant. And they agreed to keep it. And it was a covenant between them and God. And He said, you need to have a place of worship. And so they constructed a tabernacle. And later, of course, Solomon built the temple. But they needed to reestablish their worship center. They needed to recenter their character around the sort of activities that would draw them near unto God. I've asked you to notice that on that slide, some of the details of how they did this. When they came back, they were rather excited about the construction of that temple and they laid the foundation. Sounds wonderful, doesn't it? You first have to build the foundation before you can construct up on top of it. But look what happened. They soon ran into some problems, some difficulties. There were some enemies who did not want that rebuilt and did not want the city to be reestablished. And we read about that too in those books of Ezra. But one thing to notice, after laying the foundation, the work stopped. They didn't finish. And for over 14 years, nothing more was done. Can you imagine it? With zeal, with ardor, with fervency, they began the rebuilding project and laid the foundation. But then, due in part to enemies, but due in part to lack of priority, they soon stopped. And the work was dormant. They didn't do any more work on the temple. And as I said, for over 14 years, nothing was done. Into that consideration, we see what God did. God sent them some prophets, the goal of which was to stir up their passion and to stir up within them the enthusiasm they once had had because the temple needed to be completed. One of those prophets was named Haggai. The prophet Haggai was thus sent to the people to stir up their passion and to again encourage them to continue and complete the work of the temple I've tried to highlight that at the bottom. And we might ask, did the prophet succeed? I'll go ahead ahead and summarize some of it. It's the second to the last line. In 23 days, the people did more than they had done in the previous 14 years. That's what a prophet of God was able to do. To preach the message of God, to preach it in strength, to preach it in power to preach it in directness, and to lead them to understand that what they had failed to do is what God wanted them to do, and therefore they began to work. And in 23 days, they had done more than they had in the many previous years. Sometimes the Word of God does that to us, doesn't it? Maybe you and I allow things to slide by in life and Though we once were excited about it, we come to the point where we're a bit indifferent. But then the Word of God comes to us, either through the word of a preacher or the word of a friend, and we are stirred again into action. Let's close that slide like this. The hindrance to building the temple wasn't purely due to only enemies. Now that was part of it. But it also had to do with the people's perspective their outlook, their priority. And therefore, could I ask you to note verse 2 of Haggai chapter 1. Thus speaketh the Lord of hosts, saying, This people say, The time is not come, the time that the Lord's house should be built. The people were making the claim it isn't time yet to build the temple. They were offering supposed reasons justifications and rationalizing why they had not done anything for 14 years. It isn't time yet. I wonder what time it was. What were they waiting for? Well, that'll be a part of our lesson this evening, using the essence of chapter 1, specifically beginning in the following way. I just read verse number 2, but let's continue in verse 3. We have heard the people say it is a time, but what did God say? Then came the word of the Lord by Haggai the prophet, saying, Is it time for you, O ye, to dwell in your sealed houses, and this house lie waste? Now therefore, thus saith the Lord of hosts, Consider your ways. Ye have sown much, and bring in little. Ye eat, but ye have not enough. Ye drink, but ye are not filled with drink." Ye clothe you, but there is none warm. And he that earneth wages, earneth wages to put it into a bag with holes. Lesson number one. The language of verse number five. This is what Joel read for us in the lesson text just a moment ago. Consider your ways. This thought is echoed identically two verses later in verse seven Let's begin our consideration this way. The people, it's not that they couldn't have built the temple. They chose not to. Did you notice the question that God asked in verse 4? Is it time for you to build your sealed houses? They took those materials that were there for the construction of the temple and they used it to build their own house and made it fine and ornate and extravagant. They could have worked on the temple of God. They could have built that structure, but they chose in priority to do something else. And God said, consider your ways. Have you chosen that which is in keeping with my will? Have you chosen that which would be suitable for the character of what would be necessary in service to me? They were happy to have no church building, if you please. But they had fine houses to dwell in themselves. Let's go one step further. That statement of verse number 5, Thus saith the Lord. Notice Haggai wasn't just saying what he thought. He wasn't just saying what his impression was, Thus saith the Lord. God had delivered to Haggai the message. You tell them to consider their ways. You urge them to think with seriousness about the choices that they had made. Though you and I live so many centuries later... Is it the exact same principle needful for us? Consider your ways. May you and I never be guilty of rationalizing our disobedience. It isn't time for me to do what God says. It's time for me to do something else. It's always time to do what God says, isn't it? Notice again in verse number 2, they claimed it isn't time to build the Lord's house. But God says... It is time. One last thing on that slide is you and I make that application to us. Consider your ways. The God of heaven gives us His Word, of course, and how needful it is that we consider our activities and our thoughts in light of what that Word teaches. Our world is so quick to try to justify our behavior in a way that's not consistent with the things of God. We make excuses, and we justify those excuses, and that is about as good as the excuses they were making. We can all tell God wasn't well pleased with them. For 14 years, when they could have been working on the temple, and it's not to say building their own house was unimportant, but they could have finished what they were sent there to do. Instead, it isn't time to build God's house, but it is time to build my own. And it is time to refurbish it and renovate it and to make it as fanciful and as nice as one could otherwise imagine. That does say something about our priority, doesn't it? Consider your ways. How often in the Bible is that principle etched in the character of the behaviors of the messengers of God? Randy, what about your ways? I'll use my name, and you can use yours. Consider your ways. Are you sure that the approach and the outlook and the choices that you have made and are making are the best use of your time and talents, and the other matters that you could be investing in the service of the kingdom of God? Those are good questions, and they're needful questions. Examine yourselves, we're told in 2 Corinthians thirteen five. Examine yourselves, whether you be in the faith. Are you and I passing the test? Or do we need to consider our ways in the principled light of Haggai 1, verse 7? As we close that slide, may we do it like this. It might be easy on occasion for us then to justify our disobedience and allow the work of God to go ignored or neglected or at least unpursued. Lesson number two, let's develop that same point from a slightly different perspective. What were the people of Haggai's day doing? They were building something, but their priority took them elsewhere. Isn't it significant that they were building their sealed houses? And notice the adjective sealed. They weren't just getting by with some less than ideal place. They, you see, were constructing ornate houses. And they were constructing very fine places for themselves to live. And all the while, they allowed God's house to not only go dilapidated, but completely unfinished. How important is the kingdom of God to you and to me? Oh, how we should love the church and appreciate that it is the kingdom of God on earth, and how honored we are, of course, to be a part of it. The matter of priority challenges us in this regard. Think of it this way. There were particular supplies, and there were particular things that were accessible. Under the leadership of Zerubbabel, there were supplies to which they had access that permitted them in the completion of the temple, but they weren't using those things for that purpose. They were constructing their own houses with it. These sealed houses of verses 4 and 5, it was a displeasing set of choices to God. And they claimed it wasn't time to build the temple. That was just a plain lie, wasn't it? Isn't it true that often our supposed justifications boil down to a deception of ourself? We justify something in our mind or our heart when all the while we only justify that because it's really what I want. That's really what I want. And so we find ways to rationalize it in our heart. People were trying that here and God said, I'll have none of it. And he sent them a prophet to stir up their thinking, to motivate them to realize that their choices were poor ones. God's building needed to be finished. You'll notice near the bottom of that slide. Those supplies then that they were using for these other purposes, weren't they in an essence then robbing God of what they could have been doing? They could have had that temple completed. They could have had in it the table of showbread, the altar of incense, the golden candlestick. It could have had in it that necessary labor and the other things that God had specified, but they did not consider any of that important enough to work on it. And for 14 long and arduous years, their life was not what it ought to be because their priority was misplaced. The principle to you and to me is, is an easy one to make, isn't it? What about my priorities? Is going to heaven the most important thing? Is my job the most important? Is my house and my car and the size of my bank account and any other things perhaps we might add? And it's not to say any of that by itself is wrong. It's just what is the most important we noted this morning in Matthew six thirty three, seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. They needed to consider their ways. Perhaps I do as well, and maybe you do as well. This matter of priority challenges us at the bottom to know there were some others in the Bible who made poor choices. Think about Demas for just a moment. There was a person who, in fact, was an assistant on the third missionary journey. He, in essence, had worked side by side with the Apostle Paul and no doubt found difficulties, but yet his fervency at that time in life was to be noted wonderfully. But by the time we reached 2 Timothy 4, he had forsaken the truth. He had loved this world too much. And Paul said, He's deserted me. That's such a sad refrain. May you and I never allow ourselves to even begin to move in that direction. Consider your ways a matter of priority. Lesson number three. In addition to these two, what about the character of what they were doing? I've simply entitled it the consideration of work. God told them, although they were saying it's not time to do the work of God, God said it is time. It is time. And as we noted earlier, isn't it always time to do the work of God? It is never the right time to not do what God wants us to do because his way is always best. His way is always the proper and correct thing. I've asked you to build it, then build that thought with me like this. The opening statement underneath that particular word at the top notice that consider didn't just simply mean think about it it was actually time to get to work doing that temple construction in other words the word consider doesn't just mean think about it it didn't just mean to in fact allow the consideration to dwell upon your mind it meant in light of the proper priority it's time to get to work And isn't that what God, throughout His Word, encourages you and me? After an understanding of what God teaches and an appreciation of it, then implementing it is necessary. I'm reminded of that one talent man in Matthew 25. What about you? You remember the five talent man and the two talent man. They both had an understanding of what was to be done, but they put to action that which was understood. The one-talent man also knew what the master had said. He also appreciated what instruction had been given, but his understanding led him to rationalize, I'll bury it, and I'll give back the one thing he gave me. But the master was so displeased, he had not implemented the understanding of at least putting back and making available a greater amount than what he'd been given. Work. Are you and I working in the kingdom of God? Our talents certainly differ from person to person, and what you can do is different than what I can do. And what I can do is perhaps different than what you can. But all of us are not only encouraged, but required to be good stewards of those talents and capabilities and to use those features in the kingdom of God. 1 Peter 4 verse 10. No wonder in that connection... The last point on that slide takes us to maybe the thought about the wall. I know that's a slightly different context in the book of Haggai because in the days of Nehemiah, the wall of Jerusalem also had not yet been rebuilt. But Nehemiah's desire and his insistence was, let's work on this wall and get it rebuilt. You might want to think for a moment how much work would be involved in building a wall around a city the size of Jerusalem. That wouldn't be a few hours' work. That would be an extremely great amount of work. Remember, they didn't have bulldozers, and they didn't have other large cranes to put things in place. All they had were their hands, and the characteristic workings of them as they worked together as a team. When Nehemiah went back in the book of Nehemiah, he put into place a plan to build that wall. And in 52 days, less than two months, they had that wall finished. Would you be impressed with me at what again that servant of God motivated those people to do? 52 days. And they completed that protective, secure wall around the city Today, with God working with us, we are, after all, fellow laborers with Him. 1 Corinthians 3, verses 8 and 9. And therefore, how much can we accomplish when we realize we're working with Him? That fourth point is entitled, Bad Investment. I couldn't resist but invite all of us to ponder on the passage of verse 6. Haggai chapter 1, verse 6. We've devoted a fair amount of the lesson to then thinking about the poor priority of what the people had been doing. But I find it intriguing that God chose to describe that priority in another way. May I read again verse 6? Ye have sown much. Notice, they had been involved in a lot, they had sown much but you bring in little. It would appear from that language that for these 14 years, they had been active and involved in various things, but they didn't have much to show for it. I wonder why. Let's read on. Ye eat, but ye have not enough. Ye drink, but ye are not filled with drink. Ye clothe you, but there is none warm. Let's perhaps state that differently. They had been involved in planting and harvesting. They'd been involved in making clothing. They'd been involved in providing food and things to drink. But God here says, though you've provided the food, you're not satisfied. Though you have had things to drink, it hadn't been enough. Though you have clothing on the body, it is not sufficiently in character. Do you notice that what they had been doing, because it was misdirected, and they had left out God in their plans, the other parts of their life were incomplete. It wasn't what they had desired it to be. And the reason why is because the way the verse ends. And he that earneth wages, earneth wages to put it into a bag with holes. That must be one of the most graphic statements in all the minor prophets. All of us know how useful and certainly what a blessing our wages are. We go to work and as a result of that we're paid money by way of salary or wages and we desire to be good stewards of that. We put it in the bank or we use it to go provide the necessary things for our family. But surely we would never purposely put those wages into a bag with holes in it. Because we know it'll fall out of the holes and we'll lose what we otherwise had. And that's what God told these people. You've earned wages all right, but you've put them into a bag with holes. Do you know what fills up the hole? It's the things of God. He makes your life complete. He gives you the proper direction. He puts things in the proper perspective. And He allows us to always move in the direction of correctness and propriety. You've earned wages, He told the people of Haggai's day, but you've put them into a bag with holes. And therefore, you're now found wanting. The application to you and to to I, have we begun to pursue things in life that's ultimately a bad investment? Because God has been left out of the equation. If so, then we, like they, are putting our wages into a bag with holes. And we're going to be found lacking, we're going to be found wanting, and ultimately we're going to be regretful of that decision. As far as this bad investment, wouldn't it be interesting to notice that the actual word that I've tried to put there at the right, not only were their labors misdirected, but the language of verse 6 sets forth that the greatest of importances had been left out. The greatest of significance. Wouldn't it be terrible to have sojourned through life and have missed the most important thing? It'd be fair to say you would have missed, of course, what was most significant. As you and I draw near the close of this lesson seems to me some of the songs that we sing say this as well as anything ever could. Earth holds no ple- pleasure but perish with using. We often sing that song, don't we? The meaning of it, the significance of it, the message of it is hand in hand with the book of Haggai chapter 1. No wonder as we close that slide, the wisest investment of all and the one that will not only pay dividends in the near term, but in eternity as well. Lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. The very words of Jesus in Matthew 6, verse 20. Lay not up for yourselves treasures upon earth, where moth and rusteth corrupt, and where thieves break through and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rusteth corrupt, and where thieves do not break through and steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Thankfully, the people of Haggai's day were stirred into action. There was a lot of repentance to be sad because in 23 days, they had done far more than they had in the previous 14 years. Maybe you and I have lapsed into the, into the doldrums of Christianity. Maybe we've lapsed into indifference and apathy. If so, it's time to consider our ways. It's time to stir to action. It's time to realize that we have been putting our wages into a bag with holes. The book of Haggai will have much more to say, and next Sunday night we'll journey more forward in the book. Chapter 1 has some more interesting things to tell the people, and we'll make applications to ourselves as well. As we close this lesson tonight, I hope the book of Haggai has has been a powerful matter for all of us because this little inspired book, though short it is, it certainly speaks so many practical lessons. Tonight, if there's anyone in this assembly who, upon consideration of your ways, realize you'd like to make a change, we would love to wrap the arms of encouragement around you and encourage you and exhort you and to help you see that the God of heaven loves you, and that He wants you to be a faithful servant of His. If you would wish to rededicate your life to the Master then, why don't you do that tonight, so that you could leave this building in the safe confines of full association to faithfulness. If we could help you do that, we'd be honored to pray on your behalf. We would make acknowledgement of your confession and repentance. If you'd like to become a Christian, though... Believe in Jesus, repent of your sins, confess His name, and be baptized. If we could be of help in any of these ways, don't wait. Consider your ways today and do something about it while together we stand and sing.